Hi. Hi, Kristen. Hi, um, everybody. Thank you. So, um, should I assume none of you have read Otessa's book or stories, or should I? No, a lot of you have read them? Okay, I'll just take it from the top. Um, the first story in the book is called Bettering Myself, and it's about a woman who's so disconnected from her feelings that she doesn't even know she's lonely. Do you think most people are not aware of what's really happening to them emotionally on a deep level? <laughs> um, well, I don't know about most people. I think I've spent a lot of time having no fucking idea what I've been thinking or feeling, mm-hmm. just in the <clears throat> surface ego feeling world Mm -hmm. and I think that character um, has been suffering from that Mm -hmm. and has been drinking over a lot of her reality Mm -hmm. Um, I wrote that story a long time ago and I probably spent the longest time writing that story than any other story in the collection Mm -hmm. Um, and um, it was pretty personal when I wrote it although I don't Mm -hmm. think I can really relate to her anymore what year did you write it? I wrote that actually. It was I had just moved to LA, so mm-hmm. it was um, 2013. Mm-hmm. Do you like the character? Yeah, I love her. Mm-hmm. I think she's uh, funny, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, I love all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What do you, do you? You love like? all of them? Yeah, I love all of them. What do you do? You like her? Um, I'm worried about her. Yeah, um, I'm worried about her too. Yeah. <laughs> She's, um, I, well, I guess a question that came up when I read it was, do people have to shove down what's really happening in themselves to function in society? Yes. The answer is so. yes to that. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I can't really answer for everybody. Yeah. Answer for yourself, yeah. Do I have to shove everything down in order to function um, in society? They, do we have to control a lot, of, a lot of ourselves in order to function in society? Yeah, I think that that's what society is. It's Wouldn't life be more interesting if everybody revealed everything all the time? Yeah, we'd probably be, like, fucking and killing each other all the time. That sounds okay. <laughs> um, to me, that story was also about the normalization of horror. It's How like, so? Her life is horrible, and it just goes from one kind of brutal, small experience to the next, but she doesn't bat an eye. It's like, this is just life. Mm, I don't know. I think she does bat an eye. You I mean, do? She's, she, it starts off with it. Okay, people, so it's about this woman who works in a Ukrainian Catholic school, high school, in um, Astor Place in Manhattan, and she's pretty settled into her alcoholism. She has this younger boyfriend who seems really superficial and silly, and she doesn't seem to respect him much. And she has this ex-husband who now lives in Chicago. And um, the the arc of the story sort of is like status quo with her life, and then her ex-husband calls because he's been she's been harassing him over the phone for I don't know how many years. And he has some business trip planned, so he's coming to New York and wants to take her out. And he offers her money to stop calling and harassing him. 
and she takes it and then quits her job at the high school. So, spoiler alert, but that's what happens. Mm-hmm. But I think like that moment where he, he's called her and they have this plan for dinner, she's hopeful about the future mm-hmm. in her total delusion. Like, well, mm-hmm. I don't know what she's expecting, but she goes shopping for herself and takes her out her takes herself out to lunch and eats a salad for the first time in how many years mm-hmm. and it like sobers out a little bit and you know <clears throat> says that she's bettering herself mm-hmm. and then it ends up being this kind of um ins- insulting disappointment mm-hmm. when he just offers her money yeah um but in the end like there there is a little bit of redemption there what's the redemption <clears throat> well she decides to quit her job at the catholic school and writes a letter of resignation and then uh, goes to deliver it, but the church is closed. Mm-hmm. So she's sitting there on the church steps sort of doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, maybe that isn't redemption. But <laughs> if you're sitting on the stairs of a church, there's a possibility of redemption. Well, the door is closed and she, hasn't, she can't resign. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, this story also raised for me the issue of resignation. That it's, I thought to myself, are most people just resigned to their lives? Like, it's not what I wanted, I don't like this part, I don't like that part, but I'm tired or I don't think I can change it, so I'm just going to live it out this way. Do you think most people have sort of resign themselves to aspects of their lives? I think we have to. We have to at least accept certain aspects of our lives and deal with them. Mm-hmm. But everybody I know is unhappy. <laughs> Can you elaborate on I that? Mean, everybody I know has some like essential unhappiness that they're mm-hmm. they're, they're quarreling with, and they they're mm-hmm. trying to figure it out, and they they think they found the solution, and then there are phone calls, be like, oh, I found the solution, mm-hmm. and then a couple months later, that's fallen apart, mm-hmm. and there's a you know. The, the disillusionment and self-loathing that happens when you've failed to make yourself happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's just life and yeah. karma. Yeah. You said most people are unhappy and everybody, people seem to think they, they project onto something. Like in a couple of these stories, it's like men project onto women that they're going to be redeemed and their salvation lies in these women. Are those kind of scenarios always delusional? I, I've spent most of my life feeling like they were. Mm-hmm. I mean, as soon as you're disappointed, whatever you had faith in becomes a disappointment, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, love fades. Why? That, that's one of Woody my great. You know, that's one of my great. Why do people stop loving each other? But I think people. Oh God, Christine. I don't know. Um, Come on, you can tell us that in five minutes or less. That's one of the great mysteries. It's like we meet someone and we are enchanted by them and then cut to three years later and you're just annoyed by them. What happens? <laughs> um, God, well, people change. I, th- I don't know. Love is mostly chemical, right? Is that is love? It, like, why does love exist? Is it, isn't it just for survival? That's a huge question. Anybody have any thoughts on that? Why love exists? Like, if we didn't love each other, we would all be dead uh-huh but then there's in a lot of these stories there's a very corrupted kind of love where people are projecting onto others uh, they attach themselves to others as kind of shortcuts to changing their own lives mm-hmm. that's yeah. not really love well i don't know yeah okay 
Um, okay. What's the difference between love and desire? Um, well, I think a desire, at least in, in the way the noun is defined, can be fulfilled. I think love is something actually, like, it's an unattainable desire. It's something you are constantly wanting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a weird word, and I think we've fucked it up by now. It still works, kind of. I don't know. I mean, I, I think the love that I have for, like, I don't know, chocolate is really different from the love that I have for my niece, mm-hmm. you know? But we use love. I love that. I love that mm-hmm. meme or whatever. Yeah. You know? So you think the word's just been completely depleted of meaning? I think by now, yeah. Okay. Um, one of the stories in this book, Mr. Wu, mm-hmm. which the theme of the story for me was like shame and disgust mm-hmm. and self-loathing. Um, where does self-loathing come from? Is that just built into us as people, or are we taught it by society, or do our parents lay it on us, or... <laughs> These are um, the tough questions. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. Um, I, don't, I don't think that we're born with self-loathing. You don't? But maybe if we have some sort of, like, deep... Uh, no, no, I think probably some of us are born with self-loathing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I've seen people who are have uh, have lived lives perfectly loved and supported mm-hmm. and pampered and um they still can't function. There's mm-hmm. there's some kind of psychic thing that's yeah. amiss and they don't want to be alive. Yeah. So, yeah, I think some people are born with self-loathing. I mean, I would believe that, but I do think that it's um, sort of a natural function of society to hate mm-hmm. our, hate ourselves and each other a yeah. little bit. It builds um, a sense of thanks, like competition and the need to grow. Uh-huh. So it's, in that sense, it's a positive thing. It could be. Yeah. Um... Would you say that the character that in Mr. Wu and and in Bettering Myself are suffering spiritual crises? I don't think that those characters have understood how to live on any kind of spiritual level yet. Mm-hmm. I think they're living on a really basic, um, pr- like almost primordial level mm-hmm. of just like the neurotic body. And mm-hmm. their responses to stimuli. Mm-hmm. I think they have some thoughts, but they're not really connected to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that's part of what's plaguing them? I think that's what plagues all of us. Yeah, I interviewed Leonard Cohen once, and he made this great comment. He said that we all need something to hurl our prayers at. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's true. A lot of most of the characters in these books seem like they don't have any kind of spiritual anchor to anything. They have no connection to the divine or how to get there. What about the last story? Um, the last story? Oh, wait, which one? What's that called? A Better Place. To me, that was one of the most troubling stories in the book. That, to me, was like a really dark fable, like a fairy tale. Yeah. Yeah. But the characters have 
an avenue. Faith in something. That's true. Well, everybody in the book has faith in something, but it's usually misplaced faith. Mm-hmm. Like Mr. Wu has faith in the girl at the video arcade and the guy in, um, what's, Brit Went. Oh, um, he has faith in this furniture redesigner and, yeah. 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 Is this interesting? (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) Okay. um, Tell me about a book that changed you. Oh, you know what? There's this book called Nigger by Dick Gregory, who was a a, a comic, African-American in the 60s and pretty radical. Uh, That was the first book that I read. Um, And I read it when I was a kid. I grew up in a house with just tons of books that my parents didn't read. Mm-hmm. My mom was a hoarder, and she would just buy like you know stacks of books at garage sales and stuff. Um, and that book really shocked me because it was somebody writing about something extremely disturbing with mm-hmm. levity and grace and absolute honesty. Mm-hmm. And he was just writing about what it was like to be African American mm-hmm. in the United States. Yeah. Um, and it made me laugh, and it, it hurt my feelings, you know. And mm-hmm. I couldn't believe that this was the experience of some people. And uh, the title of the book, which is Nigger, which is like absolutely like, just like you know, mm-hmm. you, you couldn't believe it. Um, and so that really changed me. It made me mm-hmm. think that books could be powerful. I mean, it, it showed mm-hmm. me that a book could be powerful and have some effect mm-hmm. on me. Yeah, yeah. Ideally, how books, how should books function? I mean, does art have a spe- have specific things it should do? Um, I mean, I think for every project that I have, I have. In the end, I see that there's been something very specific that I've been trying to do, but I'm not always Mm -hmm. conscious of it in the process. Mm -hmm. I think art has a lot of functions. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Um, I keep quoting people. (laughs) Ingmar Bergman, who I did an interview, once said that art lost its way when it ceased being a form of worship. And I kind of agree with that. I think it should be some kind of it should help you connect with the divine or some larger reality outside of yourself mm-hmm. um, so I think that's one of the things it should do yeah horrify I guess it should horrify you too because there's a lot in life that's <coughs> horrifying and I think what the kind of art that I like just makes me feel excited to be alive mm-hmm. whether it's horrifying or placating or whatever mm-hmm. if I'm happy to experience it, mm-hmm. then it's good. So what was the last thing you saw that thrilled you, read or saw or heard? Oh, I went to see the James Terrell. Did I ever tell you about that? The going to see, the, um, what is it called, Light mm-hmm. um, Rainfall or something? It's at Lockman. I think it's still well, there. Well, there's the rain room, Yeah. Uh, no, which isn't his piece, but there's no. a light environment. Okay, so yeah. there's this um, uh, installation at Lockmo where you, you have to make a reservation and you... Uh, go into this room and there's this big pod set up on a platform and a man in a lab coat takes you up the steps as everything is very white and dim and lays you on this uh, bed and pushes you into this pod so that you're completely enclosed and then uh, you have earphones and there's sort of like this 180 digital screen and you can't really tell how far away it is um, and it starts off, and it's just this pale blue light that's surrounding you, and yeah. it's quiet. Uh-huh. And uh, you're in there for about ten minutes or so, and in that pale blue light that surrounds you, I, like, I, I'm initially totally freaked out. 
Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm trapped in here. It sounds like an MRI. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was a lot like that. I think it was supposed to be like that. I'm trapped Mm -hmm. in here. I don't exist. What the fuck is going on? And then it was like, chill. I mean, it was a lot like being on drugs, where like you, Mm -hmm. you get high and you have to talk yourself into accepting your new state of mind Mm -hmm. and then uh there's you know a lot of sounds and colors that start happening and you just sort of ride it but that was really wonderful i mean i Mm -hmm. like i didn't want it to end how long were you in there it was like uh, under 10 minutes Uh uh-huh how long did it take you to get comfortable in there a couple minutes yeah yeah do some people ask to be let out i bet well i went with a friend and actually there are two levels that you can choose you can choose the hard level or the soft level uh-huh. and I went with a friend and she chose the hard level and after a couple of minutes they, they give you this thing to wear around your neck like with a, a heart monitor yeah with an emergency <laughs> button and, and uh-huh. she pressed it and asked to be let yeah. out and switch to the soft level so what's happening in the hard level I mean I think it was just way more intense it was supposed to put you in a different whatever theta uh-huh. brain wave zone yeah don't ask me yeah uh-huh. Well, that sounds exciting. Yeah, it was good. Um, is all writing autobiographical? Um, no, I don't. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I think fiction is. Yeah, I think fiction is essentially autobiography told through different scrims of imagination. Mm-hmm. But. I mean, no, I don't think, I think, like, journalism, mm-hmm. reportage isn't necessarily... Yeah, I don't yeah know. that's true. Yeah. One of the amazing things about this book is how easily you go from male perspective. Some are written from the point of view of a man and others from a woman. Do you think there are fundamental differences in the way that men and women think or not? Well, I'm not... I don't know, because I've never been a man. But you've written as a man. <clears throat> yeah, but I've written as like assholes. Like I know uh-huh. what it, I know what it feels like to be an asshole. Uh-huh. You know, um, you've written from. So there's some good men in here. You wrote from the point of view of. Well, there's an older man. In that no place for good people. Yeah. So yeah. There's there's this one story about this older man who's uh, widowed, uh, widowered, or whatever, and retired and takes this part-time volunteer position taking care of um, uh, people who live in a facility for the mental, m- mentally... Retarded, right? You're not supposed to use that word. The, um, anyway. Challenged. Challenged people. And he seems really good-hearted, but he's, mm-hmm. there, there's something essentially off and misplaced and lonely about him that ma- makes him actually kind of scary, I think. Oh, you think? Because I, my impression was this is a guy who had a really controlling, boring wife mm-hmm. who finally died. He's relieved to be rid of her mm-hmm. and happy to just be have this job and be able to go home at night and not have to talk to somebody. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the older male characters that I understand are like that guy and mm-hmm. like the the, narr- the narrator of the Beach Boy. Yeah. Uh, who's also, actually, I've never made this connection, was also an mm-hmm. older man mm-hmm. who has worked diligently all his life mm-hmm. to provide. And this guy lives in New York City. Um, and his wife dies all of a sudden, and then he kind of has a nervous breakdown and just and like understands that his life has been sort of meaningless 
mm-hmm. and goes on this adventure. To but he discovers that he didn't really know who his wife was. Yeah. That's, do you think that happens a lot? <clears throat> when someone dies? No, that people are, live together for decades and then suddenly realize wow, so the person does a thing and you just think, wow, I never knew who this person was. Well, that happened to my parents. Yeah. So that seems. Can we have a show of hands real. here? <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Um, yeah, it, that's interesting. The, the uh, No Place for Good People, that character is the one character in the book who seemed really contented and had peace of mind. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, one of the most amazing things about your writing is your powers of description. Mm-hmm. Do you keep notes about things? Or just when you sit down to write, you can summon up and describe the way a person's skin looked in a certain light, in a bar, in a... You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm actually not a very visual person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's tests that you can take online mm-hmm. to test your visual sensitivity. Mm-hmm. I have really bad eyesight. I don't wear glasses. Um, I don't like wearing glasses. I don't like being able to see myself clearly in the mirror or see other people clearly from mm-hmm. up close. I like the world being somewhat two-dimensional. Like, you guys are just this blurry mass, and, like, Mm -hmm. sometimes I can see somebody scowling or frowning. Um, Mm -hmm. That seems safe and understandable to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't have... I also don't have a very good visual memory because of that. Like, I don't, you know... So where do you get all the... Well, I use my imagination. Uh Uh-huh. And I think that's what happens when you have some sort of sensory defect, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, Beethoven went deaf and, like, Mm -hmm. wrote his most amazing symphonies. Yeah. Not like I'm Beethoven, but, um, Um. yeah, I mean, when you you have some sort of defect, you end up compensating. So describing things visually for me is really fun and um, feels, like, playful. Yeah. 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 Um, today you were on Michael Silverblatt's show, Bookworm, and you made this comment, we love to hate people. Do you think that's true? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, what's at the root of that? Um, ego? Uh, self-entertainment? You think it's uh, entertaining to help, to hate others? I, yeah, I do. I mean, I think it, it's like fodder for uh-huh. uh, the mind. Uh-huh. Like, oh, okay, what are what are reasons to hate somebody? Yeah, I mean, like Donald Trump is so fucking fascinating. There's mm-hmm. so many reasons to hate him. Yeah, you can talk about him for hours. Yeah, that's true. That's like, true. You know, um, <clears throat> yeah, I think it's just part of mm-hmm. human nature. Is that part of? There's a star, story in here called Slumming. It's about a very intelligent, sort of sophisticated woman who buys a summer home in this completely white trash town and goes there every summer and just gets high and looks at these people around. Is What's that story about to you? It's about um, the privilege of displacement mm-hmm. and getting to feel like you're better than someone else and mm-hmm. when, when you're a stranger in their community mm-hmm. because you haven't had to deal with what they've had to deal with. Yeah. And it's also about New York City and what that city does to people's psyches. She is just totally insane. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can spend like like two hours in New York before I want to kill myself because uh-huh. I'm not like rich or pretty enough or famous mm-hmm. or successful enough. Yeah. Um, and it feels like a drug. Mm-hmm. And I think when I mean, I lived for New York. I lived in New York for like ten years, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it took years to understand why 
why that had been so fucked up for me. Mm-hmm. You're totally disconnected from nature. You're totally entrenched in this like underground system of mm-hmm. I don't know consciousness. Consciousness is butting up against each other on the way to something important, and uh, it's very stressful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, like slumming is about this woman who thinks that she's better than everybody else because mm-hmm. she lives in New York City. Yeah. I mean, that's really the, her only advantage. Yeah. <laughs> she's kind of, I think, the least sympathetic character in the whole book. Yeah, she's terrible. Yeah, because particularly at the end when that there's the pregnant girl mm-hmm. who's really in a state of duress, and she has no compassion for her at all, none. Yeah, so this pregnant girl shows up at this woman's summer house to, to offer to clean it uh, because she's just trying to make some money. And she ends up falling and having a miscarriage. Uh-huh. And this woman sees her bleeding and does nothing. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's just totally gross. Nothing, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's, she's bad. She's bad. Um, okay, then there's the story, The Weirdos, about a couple where this woman is with a guy that she knows is a complete idiot, childish narcissist, and yet she desires him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who can't relate to that? Yeah, who can't relate to that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. I guess that's all we have to say about that. Yeah. Um, so, okay, nothing ever happens here. Uh, we're, we're gonna. She's gonna read something from this. Um, I don't know how long you want to read, but you could start with. She was the landlady. Okay. And if you want to continue. Skip Bob Sears and continue over there. Okay, I'll see what... Okay, so this is... Nothing ever happens here. And I think a lot of people haven't read this because it wasn't published in America. Um, and actually, I wrote this... This was, this was inspired by the first place I ever lived in L.A., which was in Hancock Park. I rented this room from this woman who was a gossip columnist uh-huh. named Janet Charlton. She was awesome. Oh, I remember. She's, yeah, she was yeah. really famous. Yeah. Um... Just, I mean, bizarre series of connected people got this room for like 700 mm-hmm. bucks a month in this one story, uh, like mid century modern weird house that I never even went into. It was just like this mm-hmm. kind of like concrete square that I lived in for uh-huh. several months. It was completely miserable. There was green carpet. Anyway, so I wrote this story uh, about this uh, young kid from. Where is he from? Nevada or something? Yeah, from Utah. From Utah. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's, it takes place in the late 80s, and he moves to L.A. to be an actor. So, um, anyway. Okay. My landlady's name was Mrs. Honigbaum. When I lived with her, she would have been in her late 60s. She was a short, dark... She wore a short, dark blonde wig and large, gold-framed eyeglasses. Her fingernails were long and fake, and painted pink. Her posture was stooped in the shiny quilted house coat she wore when she walked around. Usually she sat behind her desk in a sleeveless blouse, her thin spotted arms swaying as she gestured and pulled cools from a tooled leather cigarette case. Her ears and nose were humongous, and the skin on her face was stretched up toward her temples in a way that made her look stunned all the time. Her makeup was like stage makeup or what they put on dead bodies and open caskets. It was applied heavy-handedly in broad strokes of blue and pink and bronze, 
Still, I didn't think she was unattractive. I had never met a Jew before, or anyone intellectual at all, back in Utah. <laughs> Awful. Okay. <laughs> and Mrs. Honigbaum rented rooms in her house for $45 a week to young men who came to her through a disreputable talent agent, my agent. $45 a week wasn't cheap at the time, but my agent had made the arrangements, and I didn't question him. His name was Bob Sears. You want me to skip that part? No. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Bob Sears had said I'd need a head. Sh- I'd need a headshot. So before I left Utah, my mother drove me to the mall to have my portrait taken. I had a lazy, wandering eye, so I wasn't allowed to drive. She, he's like 17 or something. She drove me resentfully, sighing and tapping her finger on the steering wheel at red lights, complaining about how late it was, how hard she'd worked all day, how the mall gave her a headache. I guess in Hollywood they have chauffeurs to drive you around and servants to make your food, she said, and butlers to pick up your dirty underwear. Is that what you expect, your highness? I'm going to Hollywood to work, I reminded her, as an actor. It's a job. People really do it. I don't see why you can't be an actor here, where everybody already knows you. Everybody loves you here. What's so terrible about that? Because nobody here knows anything, I explained. So what they think doesn't matter. Keep biting the hand and it might slap you across the face one day, she said. Boys like you are a dime a dozen out there. You think those Hollywood people will be lining up just to tie your shoes? You think you're so lucky? You want an easy life? You want to roller skate on the beach? Even the hairs on your head are numbered. Don't forget that. I did want an easy life. I looked out the window at the short little houses, the flat open plains, the sky purple and orange, blinding sparks of honey-colored light shooting over the western mountains where the sun went down. Nothing ever happens here, I said. You call fireworks over the reservoir nothing? How about that public library you've never once set foot in? How about all those teachers who I had to beg not to fail you? You think you're smarter than all them? Smarter than teachers? No, I answered. I knew I wasn't smart. Being an actor seemed like an appropriate career for someone like me. Maybe I'll end there. Okay. <laughs> um, what struck me about that story is you really seem to love the two main characters. Well, they they are having such a fun, weird romance. But it, and, and but they're so innocent, completely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and nothing ever happens yeah. between them. There's an old lady yeah. in a wig, and a young. Stud. Hot, hot guy with a lazy eye. Yeah. Doesn't know any better. <laughs> yeah. And um, she's kind of a mother and kind of a savior uh-huh. and and also kind of a know-it-all and mm-hmm. an insider and because she's a gossip mm-hmm. columnist. But they're very tender with each other and very appreciative of each other. Yeah, I think they're both lonely. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody in this book is. Is yeah. there anybody who's not? No. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Um, let me see. A Better Place, the last story, is like a terrifying fairy tale to me. Almost like science fiction. It's a very unusual story. It's different from pretty much everything else in here. Mm-hmm. What was the genesis of that story? Um, that was the last story I wrote for the collection, and when I wrote it, I knew that the collection was over. Um, and I wrote it after a break from writing all the other stories. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it's definitely, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's written in a really different register. It's written in a kind of a no time, no place, mm -hmm. although it feels slightly Eastern European. Very Brothers Grimm to me. Yeah, a yeah. little bit. Um, and it felt it's definitely the most personal story. It's about a, a, a young girl and her twin brother. And the girl and her brother have always felt misplaced in this world. So they have this theory that they're from a better place. Like they originate from somewhere else and that's the better place. And the only way, way to get back to that better place is either to die or to kill the right person. And if you kill the right person, a hole will open up in the ground and you can jump through it and get back to the better place. And mm -hmm. so I think in that sense, yeah, it is kind of like sci-fi. Mm -hmm. um, but it's written f mostly from the perspective of the girl. And she's much more ambitious about getting back to that better place. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it really is a story about me and my brother. And uh, like the, the love of a sibling, a sibling for a sibling and feeling not at home in your own family and mm -hmm. the kind of rivalry and attention that can happen when you love somebody and you're, in, you're stuck in the same shitty situation. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's a story about the decision to either go back, to leave, or to stay because you're tied to somebody that you love in this world. Mm -hmm. So it's like, do we change because we need to and want to for, for selfish reasons? Mm -hmm. Or do we stay and negotiate because we want to be attached and in love? Mm -hmm. And that... That for me is the ended up being the essential question for mm -hmm. me as the author of the collection. Mm -hmm. Like, am I willing to move on, or am I going to stay in this shit just mm -hmm. because it attaches me to something? Very good summary. Well, thank you. On that note, <laughs> let's take questions. Okay. Yes. Uh, when you write a story, when your parents write, do you have kind of an idea, like an outline in your head of the whole thing? Or do you start with a with a particular incident and kind of look around that, or some other? It's always different. Sometimes I have an entire story that I want to tell, and I know it from the beginning. But usually, I have no idea what the story is when I start writing. It's really just a voice or a sound that I hear, and I kind of put words to it, and keep looking at it and listening to it, and it starts to tell me what the story is and reveal itself. And it it. It's mostly just sitting there and watching and paying attention and letting my hands do the typing and then thinking afterwards and trying to look for patterns and understanding what the story actually is. So, you know, yeah, to answer your question, usually I have no idea. Um, I very occasionally I have a complete idea. And those are always the hardest stories to write when I think I know what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Any other questions? Mm-hmm. Um. When you're writing a character or trying to, you know, figure out the arc in which that character is going to go, um, you know, I feel like a lot of times in, especially today, you know, we are writing in the perspective of somebody that doesn't, you know, hold our own values or, you know, we're not necessarily writing by ourselves or, you know, creating somebody who you know, thinks, in a, and I guess by where I'm going with this is, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of your characters are problematic in one way or another, and, you know, how do you decide you know, what is, 
how do you decide, you know, what is, I guess, problematic enough that you want to write down, but not enough to cause controversy? I don't know if I'm making sense, but... <laughs> no. I, yeah, I, um, okay, let me trace this. Um, okay. You know, when you're writing a character, because you had said once that you, you know, somebody had um, said that, you know, Eileen, that, you know, she wasn't a likable character, but, you know, you had said that you're not here to write likable characters, you're here to, you know write people, you know, and a lot of people in, you know, aren't likable, so, you know, in, in especially in uh, Homesick for Another World, you know, none of the characters are especially likable, but, you know, that's, I think, what stands out. Do you set to write characters that are inherently flawed, or do you just kind of, you know, uh, like you said, you know, when typing, do you just let that navigator, do you, you know, intend to make these characters, you know, as flawed as they are? Well, I think everybody is flawed. I mean, I don't know what a perfect person is supposed to be. And I think in order to set a story in motion, there needs to be something wrong. Or else why bother writing the story? If everything is fine, that's so fucking boring. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think I do intend to find the flaw or the weakness in somebody. Uh, but I'm always looking for that. I mean, I'm looking for that in you. You know, <laughs> you know that's what's interesting about people is how how we're different and flawed, or whatever. Um, and I don't know. I mean, the whole unlikability thing. I think is. I think we're almost done with that conversation. I mean, since when is has fiction been about liking people? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, that's that that's for like magazine covers or something. It's the, there's no story in liking someone. I mean, I, I don't know. So, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, okay. I, yeah, it does. But, you know, you asked about controversy. I mean, just, I don't give a shit about controversy. I mean, people are going to create their own controversy. People, people call me to do interviews and ask me what it's like to be a Muslim American. <laughs> I'm not even Muslim. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like, you can have your own ideas. <laughs> yeah. Yes? Um, McGlue was mm -hmm. such a specific man in mm -hmm. such a specific place, and I, it was just so cool to me to read. But could you talk a little bit about, like, did he have to be in that place, or could, have, or could McGlue have been sort of a protagonist in any of your stories? You know what I mean? Like, on the ship and being punished. And hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I have no idea. I mean, I don't know how to how I would have written a book like McGlue about somebody like that set in another time in another place in another circumstance. So I think that that's kind of what the book is. Yeah. And it was it was inspired by a true story, and I don't think I could have conceived of it any other way. It just the the main facts of of who he was and what had happened to him came to me through reality. And um, and then I just wrote it, channeling what I felt he would have been thinking and saying to himself in during that experience of being held in this ship after murdering the person that he loved the most. Yeah. You should summarize. McClue is an amazing book. If they have it here, you all should buy it. Summarize for them what McClue is. Uh, so McClue is... Um, it takes place in 1851. It's about this 20-something guy named McGlue, who's from Salem, Massachusetts, um, comes from a broken family, 
and is a ter terrible alcoholic, decides to run away one day and meets this guy named Johnson, who's sort of this valiant figure, and um, Johnson sort of saves him from his descent into nothing. And Johnson's from a better family, and they go to New York City, and so it's like, you can imagine mid-19th century New York, and uh, they find jobs, get on a ship, whatever. But, um, but, but the book is really about being inside this guy's head, and it, it opens in the port of Zanzibar right after McGlue has murdered Johnson. And he's done it in a drunken blackout, having cracked his head open after jumping off of a train several months later. It's a lot about the way that the mind uh, tries to piece things together when it's broken, and he can't really understand what has happened. He's just killed this guy, and he can't accept it until, you know, 100 pages into the book. And it's really like a, a, a story about, it's a romance, basically, between these two men and how this guy who can't accept who he, who he is, I mean, whether you want to call him homosexual or not, it's really not about that. Um, but it's a romance. And um, in the end, he ends up destroying the thing that he loves. It's a magnificent book. Yes. <laughs> the language in which it seems mm -hmm. so specific and, and from a world and a mind and a, and a time. And I'm wondering where you got that language from, if you read um, literature from that time period, or if it just fit with like the feeling tone that you were following, said you described it as channel. I had probably read literature from that time period, but I didn't do any literary research. What I did do was read a lot of periodicals from that time, just to get the, you know, we, we call things by different names now than we did hundred and. 70 years ago, whatever. So I did do that, but um, but it but the the language of uh, of McClue's thinking is it yeah it, it is um, sort of antiquated, but it's also something else, you know. And it's for me, it was mostly that something else, and then just guessing at the antiquated stuff, yeah. Yeah, that was an amazing thing. To, you'd know you would describe like the the cargo on a ship in such mm -hmm. detail, and I would think, God, where did you figure that out? Well, yeah, I did. I, yeah. I, I did look at a lot of old newspapers yeah. from 1850. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, if you were, when you were writing story or anything, do you always have the sex of a character like determined, or do you ever flip flop somebody or whatever? Not yet. Later? I have not flip flopped yet. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I think some of the stories at the be the beginning, at the Genesis, could have gone other either way, and then at some point I make a decision about the gender of the character, and it's I don't know. Sometimes I think I always make the easy decision. Like if it's somebody I want to make fun of, I choose a man, <laughs> and if it's somebody that I want to dig into and and find disgust in personally, it's a woman. I mean, that's just about me. Um, yeah. How do you decide if a story or a novel is finished? <clears throat> when I'm done working on it. <laughs> <laughs> like when you're over it? 
you actually usually I know it's done when I'm the most in love with it and like I can't handle it anymore and I need to show it to somebody else but it, it usually happens right after I'm over it and then I'm over it again later yeah it's like a you know bipolar relationship but I don't know are you a writer is that why you're asking that question yeah I mean I don't know it, like when is anything ever over it's over when it's published I guess because even after you've you've submitted it to be published you're still changing it you know so. having observed her process she just finished a novel and I remember in December she said oh it needs six more months and then a week later I got an email oh I finished it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it can be unpredictable yeah yeah anything else What's your like, daily writing process? I mean, do you like to write in the morning? Do you like to write like six hours straight or just an hour? Or? Um, usually I write for like five to ten minutes at a time. And I just quit smoking. So I'm go- this is a problem. I, I I'll, I'll always need something to interrupt the, the process because I very quickly get overwhelmed and feel like I'm going crazy. So I have to get up and do something. But I basically, when I'm working on something, I'm working on it most of the day uh, for five to ten minutes with 20-minute breaks. Yeah. Yep. What are you reading? Um, uh, what am I reading? I'm, I just started a book by Shirley Jackson, who people compare me to a lot, and I've never read anything by her. And I was asked to write an introduction to uh, a new, or maybe not new, whatever, newly republished collection called Dark Tales. So I started reading that. I was just say, like, I totally don't understand why I'm compared to her <laughs> at all. <laughs> but, but yeah, that's what I'm reading. Okay. Okay. Thank you, guys. And thank you, Christine. Thank you, Tessa. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.